This is Publishing Talks, a podcast about books and the publishing industry. I'm David Wilk, your host, and today I'm talking to Mary Gannon. She's the executive director of the Community of Literary Publishers, wait a minute, CLMP, Community of Literary Magazines and Presses. And I'm actually on the board, uh, so I should know the name of this organization. Um, but it is always plus once upon a time it was called CCLM, and the you know it's been kind of different identities over the years. But CLMP, which you run, Mary, is now in excess of fifty years old. It's a tremendously important and valuable organization to the literary community. And I welcome you to Publishing Talks. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So, you know, usually, as I've mentioned to you in these conversations, often it's about the history of publishing or it's about uh, technology and how it's affecting publishing and what the future might bring. Uh, today, because we are in the midst of the pandemic, we're going to be talking about both the history of independent publishing, literary magazines and presses, about your work, uh, past and present, but also um, kind of try to figure out what is actually happening uh, in this period uh, and, and kind of crucially what it means for independent publishing, because I think this is not a, an easy time for anyone, but not a, really in particular, it's going to be a difficult time for nonprofit and uh, independent literary organizations that are not commercial. Um, so before we talk about that, I just thought it would be good to introduce you uh, and give you a chance to talk about how you got to become the executive director of CLMP. Um, so maybe you could talk just briefly about your own experience in writing and publishing. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, let's see, I moved to New York in 1995 after um, attending graduate school in creative writing at Arizona State University studying poetry. And at that point, I was interested in getting into publishing, which is why I moved to New York. And I got a job working at Poets and Writers, another literary nonprofit organization in New York City whose mission is to support writers um, as yeah, which makes sense from the name of it. Um, so I started there at the magazine. They have a flagship magazine called Poets and Writers Magazine and um, was there for about, oh, over 12 years, um, eventually becoming the editor of the magazine and then the editorial director for the organization. So overseeing both the magazine and the website, which has a suite of resources for writers, databases on small presses, literary magazines, writing contests, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, I loved that work. I loved working for, for poets and writers um, and sort of, try, you know, executing the mission of the organization through both the, the publication of the magazine and the resources that the website offered. Um, but I was also interested in pursuing um, nonprofit administration. And so from there, I moved to the Academy of American Poets, which is another nonprofit literary organization, um, a national organization, again, located in New York, whose mission is to support poets and um, to sort of expand the audience for poetry in our country and beyond. Um, so I was there for about five years as the associate director slash director of content. And they have a membership magazine there called American Poets. So I oversaw that. And then also their website, which is um, a really highly trafficked website. Um, it has a, a huge repository of poems um, that people can, can find, as well as um, they have an education program as well, where they try to provide resources for teachers to bring poetry into the classroom. So I oversaw that as well. And then when the job at CLMP opened up, it seemed like the perfect opportunity to kind of marry both of those um, experiences, uh, working experiences, and to return a little bit more to the publishing side of things. So I was really excited about the opportunity um, and joined CLMP almost two years ago. And it's been great so far. 
Well, and you've done a well from from what I can tell. I think you've done a really good job. I, sh- I assume you're still writing as well. I do. I am trying to write. Um, I don't have as much time as I wish I had, but um, I actually just published a book with my my husband, Kevin Larimer, that came out from Avid Reader Press, which is an imprint of Simon and Schuster. Uh, on April 7th, that was um, a book that w- is, it's the Poets and Writers Guide to, Complete Guide to Being a Writer. So that was tied to my work at Poets and Writers. But I still do write poetry too. Um, I haven't been actively publishing as of late because I've been kind of busy, but I hope to return to it. That's good. Well, it's, it is always difficult to be a uh, art, I think in particular to be an arts administrator and to write, I think it's hard to have a job and to write, but I think somehow there's something about arts administration that makes it more difficult on some level. I'm not sure why that is. Um, but so let's talk a little bit about CLMP. Now I did in, uh, you know, some years ago I interviewed Jeffrey, your predecessor, Jeffrey Leppendorf, who, was the director of CLMP for a number of years, and he talked about the history of the organization. Uh, you know, my my history with it also goes back a really long way uh, to the early seventies, um, and I, it's a an organization. I doubt that people outside of the nonprofit literary world or the independent publishing literary world know very much about. Uh, although, you know, in New York, I think because of its efforts over the last fifteen or twenty years to fundraise and increase its awareness in the larger publishing community. I think people in publishing know about it. Um, but it is essentially a, well, maybe you should talk about it, but it's you know one of the only organizations that's literally uh, dedicated to supporting independent literary publishers. That's right. Um, yeah, I think maybe it is the only one. Um, there are other trade organizations that support publishers, but uh, literary magazines and um, independent literary presses um, are really the community that we focus on. Um, and yeah, the organization, its mission is to help our publishers, our community work better um, because such an essential part of the literary publishing ecosystem. I mean, you know, literary magazines and small presses are usually the place where some of our most important writers first find a home for their work. Um, You know, they're uh, dedicated because they're mission-driven and not, you know, um, well, because they're mission-driven, they're dedicated to the work of making sure that a diverse array of voices are brought forth into the world, into the culture at large. And, um, you know, without them, I feel like writers wouldn't have the same kind of platform for launching their careers and sustaining their careers. And literature in general would be um, not as strong in our country. But CMP... Well, and you know, I, I my observation, and I think it's maybe fairly obvious, is that every uh, generation of writers, every every kind of community of writers, ends up somehow creating a publishing entity of some kind. You know that that it's a form of expression for uh, groups of writers, for communities of interest, uh, for people who uh, have common literary or social literary concerns. I was just looking at um, some article just recently about um, uh, communities of women writers and how important it's always focused on the publishing, you know, and I was thinking about Kitchen Table Press, which was Barbara Smith and Audre Lorde in the 80s. And, you know, just there are uh, so it's constantly being reinvented, recreated, and and some are ephemeral. You know, magazines, presses reflect a certain period of time. They reflect a certain period of uh, publishing, you know, kind of uh, uh, literary thought and output, and they will be, they might last a few years, but then there are others that, interestingly, just go on for 
all you know seem to go on forever, reinventing themselves uh, over periods of decades, and it, so it makes a really interesting mixture of publishing. So you can have like the Sewanee Review, which has been in you know publishing for I don't know how long, maybe a hundred years, and um, you can have a press that forms itself you know in 2018 and disappears by 2022 right and they're all important they are all meaningful uh and they share one thing they share is that it's very difficult to, to for them to operate right so what you serve in many cases is the new people who need to find out how to do this um you know it's sort of technical support um and then there are the kind of ongoing support issues for the people who have been doing it for a long time. That's right. That's exactly right. It's funny. I was um, recently on a panel with Jamia Wilson, who's the executive director of the Feminist Press, and she was talking about that very thing. They're celebrating their 50th anniversary this year. And when the press was first um, launched, the idea was that like it wouldn't have to go on for forever, certainly not 50 years. It would just be this initiative that would, you know, through its mission, make sure that the work of women writers were, you know, had a platform and that the idea was that once that happened, they would be integrated into the rest of publishing in a substantial way. But here we are 50 years later and, you know, the, the publisher feminist press is still as essential as it, as it was then. Right. And it has a role to perform that, that, um, it's evolved and changed, you know, something that they did 50 years ago, uh, would not be the same done today. Right. Uh, but they still have a mission and a, yeah. and, a, and they still have a meaningful um, in, and an important role. Now, I, you know, and in many ways it's, ch- you know, other things have changed too. I I think, you know, literary magazines, uh, many of them in the 60s, 70s, 80s were produced using technology that doesn't exist anymore. Um, many of them printed in kind of magazine formats that don't exist anymore or don't have a commercial uh, place anymore. You know, it's interesting to me in a lot of ways that publishing is a combination of uh, technology and art in the sense that, um, you know, what is a magazine or what is a book is based on what paper will fit onto a printing press and how books are actually built and, and shaped is a function of technology that uh, you know that has proven to work for human beings to read, um, and what we have, you know, one of the things that we've talked about in this series of conversations I've had with people has been the evolving technology and of printing and publishing, but also the you know those things that last the you know the ways that people interact with a machine and with a, a book as a machine or. Uh, digital or print doesn't matter. All of that is changing. But one of the things that has really changed a lot is the commercial, the ability for uh, printed books and magazines to actually be found and purchased by readers. Um, You know, in a way, it's a circular circularity or a cycle of, of in this is that Precisely the problem that existed in 1974 or 75 for a literary magazine, which was finding shelf space and a place where you could be found by readers, exists again today. Um, And that, so a lot of the magazines that you serve and work with are purely digital, they have no, they have no print form. That's something that didn't exist, obviously, in the past. Um, I think probably that's less true of literary book publishers, that there are fewer pure digital book publishers that, than there are uh, magazines, I think. Yes. I think. Yeah, and I think that's true. You would know that. Um, but I think there the issues are still... You know, for a digital publication, you still have visibility problems. How can you be found? You know, the vastness of the internet is, you know, kind of the obverse problem of the narrowness of shelf space available for print objects. Um, You know, they have infinite shelf space online, but that poses its own set of problems, which is discoverability 
and commercial, um, you know, how do you make it, how do you sell things in an environment which lends itself to um, uh, free distribution? So, right. you know, these are, you know, these are all the problems that I think your clientele uh, is facing in the general sense. But now we can talk about the specific difficulties created by what's happened and is happening. Uh, you know, we're almost at, you know, at the end of May, early June of 2020. So we don't even know what the literal effects of this pandemic will be um, to the world at large, which is the context for independent publishers, literary publishers. Um, but what do you see happening at this moment? Like what is happening to um, the literary publishers that you're in touch with? Well, let's see. Literary magazines, um, the good news is that in some cases, in many cases, um, subscriptions are stable and or um, have increased a little bit as people are finding themselves sheltering in place and looking for things to read. Um, they are, you know, renewing and subscribing to magazines. So that's good. Um you know, I don't think that there's a huge increase or anything, but at least that income stream is stable for the most part among the literary magazines that I've spoken to. But every other income stream for literary magazines obviously has been affected. So nonprofits um, who host galas or any kind of fundraising events, in-person events, all of that income stream has been affected. Advertising for high circulation magazines like the Paris Review it's been affected um, magazines that are affiliated with universities and colleges are in some cases they've had their budgets cut because obviously universities and colleges are also having to cut their overall budgets and have had um, you know have had to to pull back on things um, so but as you said literary magazines in general don't really rely on um, newsstand sales for substantial income. So in that regard, even though they're not in news in, you know, independent bookstores, um, they're not suffering that much from that particular income stream. Small press publishers, on the other hand, um, are, you know, independent literary publishers are suffering huge losses from the disruption to the distribution network. You know, everything from, in some cases, printers not being up and running, or at least for certain periods of time in certain states. Um, the distributors themselves are, in some cases, working with skeletal staff, and so there's slowdowns there. And then, as we know, all, you know, bricks and mortars, independent bookstores, for the most part, are shut down. Um, and then Amazon has deprioritized the selling of books. So... Indie publishers, all publishers are facing losses anywhere from like 50 to 70% they're predicting uh, for the coming year. And probably that recovery won't, won't, you know, they won't be back up for the year after either. Um, a lot of publishers are reducing print runs or, you know, pushing the release of books that have been scheduled for summer. Um, but what that happens is, you know, what happens is that it creates a little bit of a... Um, you know, they still had a schedule for whatever season they're pushing the book to. So it's, you know, it creates a problem for the future as well. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty challenging time, I would say. And same thing with nonprofit publishers, book publishers, they too, obviously are suffering from um, any kind of fundraising, in-person fundraising events, as well as just general contributions from individual donors because of the economy. So it's, it's tough. Yeah. No, I think for, what, what would you say, what percentage of your clientele is actually nonprofit, do you think, in the sense of being a 501c3 or being housed by one? I mean, that would include universities, obviously. Um, do you think it's like a third or is it fewer than that? Um, I think it's actually, well, let's see. I think it's closer to 60%. Um, we did a survey of our members and obviously not every single member 
responded. But of about, let's see, it was 177 respondents, um, 54% were nonprofit, are nonprofits. Okay. Well, that's more than I thought. So that's really, that's a problem because clearly, as you know, any nonprofit, including CLMP, has to face the difficulty of, uh, you know, whatever the percentage is, you know, 25 or 30% unemployment, however long that's going to last, the people who might give you money might themselves not have money to give. Uh, but also if people are giving money, they're going to be asked and and want to give it to uh, food banks and um, organizations that serve immediate human needs, not to say that reading and art are not immediate human needs, but I think food and shelter are the things that a lot of people feel the necessity to donate to. Exactly. And it's harder, I think, for a nonprofit literary organization to say, raise its hand and say, could you support me too? Although everyone, I, I'm getting a million solicitations from nonprofits of every stripe in the world everyone is asking for money and everyone knows that they're competing with um, the kinds of charities that absolutely are crucial to the survival of human beings on a, you know, meat and potato, well, meat is not the right word, uh, but food and food and shelter, you know, people, it's, you just feel like, can I, dare I ask for a hundred dollars when the person on the receiving end of that plea may say, I've only got a hundred dollars to give and it's got to go to the food bank or it's got to go to this homeless shelter or it's got to go to this uh, women's shelter for women who are trying to escape abuse. So I think that this is going to be a real problem for the nonprofit uh, world for the year and for beyond because we have no clue how long that'll last. Uh, so that, yeah, that's, and and at the same time, the double whammy is sales are going to be uh, hugely affected by this. Yep. Um, now, the other, I guess, the other interesting point on a constructive basis is people want to support nonprofits. They want to support the literary institutions that serve them that that means so much to them. Um, do you f- are do you feel like uh, it's possible for the independent? community to um, uh, rely less on resale uh, outlets like on the you know on the bookstores on the distributors on the you know the existing mechanisms like Amazon is it you know is it going to be possible for them to say to their communities to our community uh, buy books from me uh, buy books from uh, buy the magazine from us don't look for it at well you won't be able to look for it on a bookstore shelf because their bookstores are closed. Can you come and and buy it from us directly? And is that practical at at a time like this? You know, can people go to the can can a magazine or a press go to the post office? You know, can they get UPS to pick up? Um, I suppose those are, you know, do you have an you know, are you doing it from your home? If you're doing it from an office, that's a problem. Um, right. So that's exactly how is what do you hear from people about that is like like direct you know going direct is obviously beneficial but is it practical um absolutely publishers are doing it and to your point those who are set up to do it are doing it i mean i've spoken to some people who are fulfilling orders from their home i've spoke to spoken to others who have access to their offices and are doing it from there and then still others are not able to do it um and in which case you know there there are some other options available but um like bookshop for example is is one alternative to Amazon that has been, as I, I know you know, um, you know, part of the proceeds that they earn or the income that they earn, revenue that they earn goes to independent bookstores. And so that helps to support the whole supply chain. Um, but not every book can be available in bookshop right now since they just got up and running. Right. Um, and they fulfill through Ingram, I think. So unless your unless your books are available or your magazine is available at Ingram Wholesale, uh, then you won't be able to be fulfilled by Bookshop, and that, and of course, you know that's a limitation that they will have, I think, going forward. 
Ingram Wholesale won't carry, you know, the magazine. That's a whole other conversation, you know, is how will magazine distribution work uh, in a world where there are fewer bookstores, if that's what ends up happening. Uh, that was already a huge problem for printed literary magazines. They're almost uh, being forced out of existence by the, you know, by the destruction of the retail chain. Right. Right. Um, I always think of One Story magazine as an interesting model for this because they are, they never, they only distribute through subscription. Um, and they have a pretty robust um, business. Um, but yeah, I think that there is, what I've heard from our members is that to the extent that it's possible, and it is possible for them, they are selling directly to their communities and really trying to, you know, to make that happen because it, it benefits them. But but again, they can't all do it. It just depends on the situation they're in. Right. Well, I wonder if that, you know, we hope that out of challenges will come opportunities. There's a lot of creativity amongst human beings, and it is very possible that some new ideas will form form as people think about this and try to figure out alternatives um you know i can think of some ways that things might um happen you know that that there are ways that people could come up with um new for, new structures new ideas i mean i lately i've been thinking that um publishers may end up wanting to copy the structure and and principles of community supported agriculture not for each not kickstarter style for a book but more um saying to uh uh buyers or or you know uh, people who are interested in them it's sort of like what um Kyle Schlesinger does and Chax Press does where you become a subscriber to the press. Right. And I'm sure a lot of other people do this as well. Uh, Kyle's is cuneiform, cuneiform, um, you know, where you, uh, and I think Siglio does this too. That's um, right. And uh, you give them a chunk of money and you become essentially um, a subscriber to the output of everything they do. Uh, and yep. you get a few things that, you know, other people can't get. Um I think that formulation may become more and more important. It's sort of like uh, harkens back to uh, the, a model that I think existed in the 18th century, where um, a lot of publishing was done by subscription. Yeah, that you would you'd send out a prospectus, and um, someone the, the the community that had enough money and cared about your ideas enough would supply you with the money to do what you needed to do. And I think that that probably is going to become a, a, a viable alternative, a necessary alternative for a lot of publishers of like subscriptions for magazines too, where, you know, you get, that's an old idea. You know, you get paid 50 bucks for uh, six issues and that means you have $50. Um, you right. know, you're able to produce your magazine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, it, nothing is new really, but I think all of these ideas are going to start percolating because um you'll have no opportunity you know there's no really a no other choice and people really do need uh readers writers we all need literary magazines we need literary publishers um you know we that's just i think that's an absolute uh and if, if we need them enough we'll have to find a way for them to exist absolutely i agree wholeheartedly um i just got my my package from Siglio Press last week, actually, <laughs> and uh, they do, they are, they do have a great model. You, as you say, you become an advocate and it's a subscription and you, when they're, you know, they send you their new releases when they're available, plus some of their beautiful um, ephemera that they do. Um, so it is, it's a great model and it's something that I feel has more relevance right now because of our situation. I think that I mean, you see it in other arenas as well. People aren't ordering things from, say, Amazon right now. They're, you know, finding ways to get things delivered to their home um, directly from whomever it is that's producing them, which is kind of exciting. Um, I know that there's a couple of other magazines, too, that have just 
I think Fence, for example, Fence Magazine is one that decided to stop working with a distributor and just sell directly to its community. Um, and I agree. I think that that it is a model that could work. Uh, the other thing I just would say is that an, another um, positive that has come out of this situation is this the range of programs and initiatives that um, a lot of literary magazines and publishers are offering to readers at this time, um, as well as the kind of collaborative spirit that's happening. I mean, CLMP is having biweekly meetings with its members and the idea generation and just sharing information and trying to leverage resources. That's something that's always happened, but it's, it's, um, it's happening in a much more uh, productive way, I guess, right now because of the situation that we're in. Right. So I, I agree. I think something, something really good could come out of this. Do you, do you think that there will be more kind of a sharing of ideas among uh, publishers? You know, I'm thinking about, you know, there have been periods of time in the past when, um, and I, I think this is clearly a crisis like no other. I don't think that there's anything that we can look back on and say, oh, this is similar to what happened here. Um, I don't think there is a, a similar uh, time. I mean, maybe the Great Depression, you know, on some level uh, could be an example, but I don't think any of us were around then. So we don't really know how how people shared ideas at that time, yeah. different ways of communicating too. But so, But thinking about today and given the amount, the one thing that really makes communication so different is the internet. Does that enable a, a level of sharing of ideas that couldn't have been possible before? And what do you, do you feel like there will be a change in the way that community of the literal community, I don't mean the organization, but the literal community itself um, will be altered by connections that are made now during this difficult period of time. People are talking to each other who might not have before. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in the literary field at large, you know, I've had so many conversations with um, leaders about how we can join forces to help one another make the argument about, for example, just how important it is to fund um, literature in general. Um, and there've been collaborative efforts in that way that we've then, you know, worked on projects together and are contacting philanthropic institutions to try to make that argument together. And it's a much more compelling argument when you have, um, a collaborative statement like that. Similarly, just with, you know, our members at the community of literary magazines and presses, I absolutely feel that the relationships that have been forged in these, Zoom calls that I think, you know, on some level people are feeling a little bit exhausted by it all. But on the other hand, being able to see one another's faces and talk to one another and share concerns and come up with ideas about how to solve problems, um, I think that those relationships, that's going to last. Um, and even something like for the past Four years, CLMP has put together something called Press Fest, which is an in-person event associated with the um, Penn World Voices Festival in New York City. So it's like a marketplace where our CLMP members come and set up booths and sell their books and magazines. And it is prohibitive for anybody who's not in the area. It's too expensive for a publisher from California to come out just for a day to do this. So Pen World Voices has gone digital and the Indie Lit Fair is going digital as well. And this year, our participation obviously is just that much greater because we're able to open it up on a national level. Um, so there's opportunities like that that are opening up that um, even though it seemed obvious, it just wasn't right. It wasn't what we were doing before. Right. Now, I thought, I thought about that I, I, in the various poetry readings that I've attended or poetry or literary events via Zoom, realizing that if you have an event, let's say somewhere, New York City, uh, an afternoon poetry reading series, only people who live in New York go to that. So maybe they right. get 30 or 40 people and it's a really, they all know each other and they're having a great time. Um, 
but they do the Zoom version of it and maybe 60 people attend. And that includes the people who might have been there in person, but 30 other people who never would have been able to go. Um, Or an event in X city that, you know, maybe uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis, you know, there's a reading that only people in Minnesota would have been able to go to, but now everyone in the world can see. And I think you're right. I think that that it's not it's not clear whether you know sixty people or a hundred people online is as important or meaningful as twenty five people in the same room. I we don't know. I don't know what that means. Right. But it, I do know that that means you more people heard the poems. And right. um, in this case, for publishers, it might be that they can. Uh, uh, reach more people. Uh, yes, the the bonds are you know our bonds are weaker when we are not in the same room and we are not physically transacting. I understand. You know, we know that that's a different relationship, but it is what yep. we have now, and it shows you that um, it it well. I think what you're saying is it's viable. Um, right. It may not be better than. It's sort of like it goes harkens back to the uh, you know long discussions that people have had about um, digital reading versus print reading, um, listening to uh, music on a, C- a CD well on a on a turntable versus listening to digital streaming. Um, there is you know there are differences in the experiences, uh, digital versus real. Let's say, um, but when you are not able to have the real experience, is the digital experience uh, lesser or greater? Yeah. I think in turn, yeah. And in terms of um, being able to participate and open things up for now, um, I think will, I don't know. I mean, personally, I think there's nothing better than the in-person experience. However, I think there will be benefits from what we're doing now toward that in the future. When we can reconvene, going back to your point, there will just be sort of closer connections and relationships with one another that we'll be able to, um, that we'll be able to build on yeah. maybe in this whole experience, you know? Well, but there, there is another side to that too, that I would argue and this is complicated and maybe, you know, more than, I'm not sure I really know enough to say this, but, um, you know, we've thought a lot about sustainability and mm-hmm. climate change in relation to sustainability. And, you know, there's this long discussion about travel in that connection because we live in a fossil fuel driven travel world. And in a way, what the pandemic shutdown has revealed is the utter reliance we have on fossil fuels to do so much of our daily lives, and yet that we can still do so much of our daily lives without the fossil fuel uh, enablement, enablers. Um, Mm -hmm. So, but this is really tricky because if we say, well, we don't need to fly as much, like I think a lot of businesses are going to say, this works. We don't need to fly people from X to Y as much as we did before. Um, you know, we've been able to get by and we can do, yes, Zoom meetings are not as good as face-to-face meetings. But uh, uh, if I have to fly you from New York to California or New York to London in order to have a meeting that's going to last two or three hours, the cost of that is massive. And people have done it because they felt that they had to. Right. Uh, it was like going to Book Expo. You go because you feel like you have to. Yeah. Um, now Book Expo will be online. It, you know, for I think for a lot of people, it's just going to be invisible. No one will go, um, or fewer people will go. Some people will experience it. Other people will just say, "Oh, it doesn't exist anymore." So I and physical meetings of all kinds may no longer be as possible as they were. And not being able to go for a couple of years, if it turns out to be that long, um, may alter, that will really alter human behavior. So yes. what you, now that, how does that affect, you know, the, the kind of the literary world in the sense that um, 
if we're not able to do really long travel, we can get together in our local communities. We want to be able to do that. That's really powerful. But how can we maintain the larger network of relationships that makes us um, citizens of the world, citizens of the country, citizens of you know something larger than just this small area that we happen to inhabit? Um, or are we going to become more local <laughs> in some way? Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, this is really something that remains to be seen. It's true. It's true. And um, I and I worry a, a little bit about you know, like, will this snap back? You know, well, I don't know. I, I some people I've talked to think that as soon as there is a cure or a a, a, a you know a real vaccine everyone will want to go back to doing what they did before. Um, I just don't believe that. I think some, you know, there, this is an opportunity for something new to emerge, I hope. And, um, you know, I, what I'm interested in is to see how that will happen with, um, with writing as a community, as a sharing of ideas. Um, you know, the written word does not require physical presence. But mm -hmm. so much of what supports the written word does require physical presence, um, or does, or is helped by physical presence. Mm -hmm. um, so that I think is going to be a really big challenge for us. I think it's true, and I'm with you. I can't imagine that we will snap back to exactly where we were before. I mean, you know, a lot of the tech companies have already decided that they're not going to be. Um, that they're not going to be, that they'll continue working remotely. Yep. Um, and uh, so I think there will be, there will be differences. Um, just on a personal level, I can think of one literary nonprofit leader who said, you know, I'm never <laughs> going back to an office. I always want to work with my dog on my lap. I, you know. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, this is something that you probably see LMP will have to deal with. I think also, um, you know, small publishers and big publishers, anybody with an office, in particular offices in New York and yes. other cities, um, I've been asking publishers and people, you know, and, and the businesses that relate to publishers, like, what are you going to do? Um, and everyone that I've spoken to in publishing or outside of publishing has said, we're not going back. The office probably won't be open until the fall. And mm -hmm. when we go back, it's going to be different, you know, that not everyone is going to be asked to come in every day, that right. there will be some people will only come in one day a week. Some people will come in two. Some people will come in three. Um, we'll be working from home more, commuting less. We'll do more meetings with Zoom because now we know we can do that. Um, right. And I think that that will have a huge impact on, and it might be positive in some ways. Um, you know, if you're a small nonprofit like CLMP, you're paying a very large rent for an office space. Um, maybe that's something that you can change. Yep, absolutely. You may have to. Mm -hmm. Although then the question is like, where do, where do your files go? You know, or is everything going to, do we have to now digitize every bit of file that we have? Like you got to have some place where your history is. Well, that's another, yeah, that's another excellent point. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And, you know, I think there, it, there is still the necessity for meeting in person around certain things. So you have to have some kind of meeting space, regardless of where it is, right. even if it's temporary. Um, well, but, but then, you know, we have those models. Yeah, exactly. That you have like all over New York, those places exist for a lot of these startup businesses, the WeWork kind of places, or um, I forget, there's some company that just does meeting space that you can use. You, I think you sign up for a subscription. Yep. And then you have the ability to use meeting space, I think actually all over the world for some of these companies where, you know, if you happen to be in Chicago and you want to have a meeting with two or three other people, you just contact them, book the space, and then that's part of your subscription. Right. So maybe that will be, I mean, because I agree, I think that everyone feels that there are some meetings which require people to be in the same room together. Mm -hmm. um, I think it would be very difficult to have a uh, an organization that never, ever 
met in person. That would be, yeah, I agree. Although, as I said that, I thought, well, I, I met this business consultant once. He, he's a fairly famous guy. And he told me that he does not have a place to live. He does not have a home. He travels constantly for work and stays in hotels. And he FedExes clothes. He has like a, a, a like a, a person who takes care of his work, his business for him. They FedEx clothes to him. They, you know, do all that kind of support stuff for him. He, but he never has a home to go to. And that's sort of the same idea as ha never having a meeting space of your yeah. own, that you're yeah. kind of a nomad. I don't think that I, when you talk about this one guy and, and I tell people about him, most people look at me like I could, that's just crazy. And I think that most people would feel the same way about it, never having a meeting or never having ever an office to go to. Um, I think it's just too alien to the way that we have envisioned ourselves. I agree. And I also think that there's a way we communicate as human beings that, you know, a lot of it is, um, takes place in person, but isn't necessarily spoken. I mean, there's just so many nuances to human interaction that you lose right. when you're not in person. Right. Well, even in a, like if you met like in a meeting, let's say you have eight people who go into a meeting. Well, sure. The meeting could have been done virtually, but what about the conversations that two people had when they met outside the hall or outside the meeting in the hall, they had this really important revelation, um, just by chance, um, yeah. or that the, after the meeting, four people stand around talking about stuff that was generated by the meeting. Whereas in these online meetings, every, you know, like it says, leave meeting, everybody does, you're done. You never, there's no conversation. There's none of that desultory talk. Right. Um, and I would think that, especially for, if I was a literary publisher, it would be the creativity that comes about by chance as much as anything else that you would not ever want to miss. Right. So I think there, you know, that, but that's, there's, there's a challenge there, as we said, you know, there's always an opportunity. We'll have to, you know, to figure out how to do those things um, after either during this period or after this period is done and things have changed. We'll have to, you know, I, I'm not sure any of us know how, but I think a lot of people are going to be figuring this out. Yep. For sure. So if, if I asked you right now, what would you say is the, well, I will ask you, what is the biggest challenge and slash opportunity facing the literary community, not just the presses themselves or the magazines themselves, but the literary community at this moment, you know, as we are in the middle of and not really clear about what is going to happen to us, um, what do you, what feels like the biggest thing going on? I think the biggest challenge is just sustainability for both um, working literary artists, for literary publishers, for literary nonprofit organizations that support literature. I think it's, it's sustainability. Everybody is... Um, suffering huge financial losses. And, you know, our community in general is particularly vulnerable, I think, because we tend, you know, literary publishers are smaller, they tend not to have the same kind of cash reserves, etc. But once this, the dust settles, and hopefully we get back to, we can return to some semblance of how things were before. Um, you know, it would be horrible if writers didn't have any place to publish their work anymore or to promote their work or any, you know, opportunities to teach in the schools or all of the other outlets that these um, venues offer to writers. Um, so I think that that's the biggest challenge is sustainability. I think the biggest opportunity, um, the sort of light at the end of the tunnel is kind of along the lines of what we're talking about, all the ways in which the creativity of our people um, and our community 
what's going to come of that, you know, the, the collaborative efforts of everybody. Um, I think the problem solving that's going on as we work together, there isn't a sense of competition right now. There's just a sense of, um, you know, joining forces and helping one another in whatever ways that we can, you know, publishers are helping bookstores, uh, publishers are helping writers, writers are helping publishers, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think that that kind of collaborative spirit is very generative and that a lot of good will come from it. New models, new networks, new relationships, new ways of thinking. Um, as long as we can just sort of hold on during this time. Right. Well, what you're saying is essentially that we are, we are dis people are discovering and believing in the mutuality in a community. Uh, the defining of a real community is is really um, activated by this challenge, and I think that hopefully that's happening on a large scale, not just you know what we see ourselves, but on a large scale everywhere. Right. I hope so, because it's really if we can't be if we cannot form communal bonds in a time of crisis, then we're lost. Agreed. <laughs> On that happy note. But I, I'm really glad that you see that happening because I think it's confirmation. Uh, and it's great. You know, it's really, uh, I think it has long lasting value. I think establishing bonds of community and communalism does make us stronger. It makes it possible to recreate ourselves in a time when things are changing and we don't know how they should turn out. In fact, there is no answer to that. We're going to make it happen ourselves. Right. So I think that's that's really great. And I, I want to hear that. I want to feel that optimism, you know, when we're in a difficult time because it is so easy to feel uh, lost and confused and um, in pain. So it's really good to hear that is happening. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's the, it's the light in the darkness. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I appreciate your saying that. It's really good to hear it, especially at the end of a long conversation about what's going on, because <laughs> uh, it could otherwise lead us into more of more darkness than light. So I appreciate right, right. that. Well, thank you very much, Mary. Uh, it's really a pleasure to talk to you and to hear your voice and the light that you bring. So I appreciate that. Um, thank well, you. thank you. It was a pleasure. This has been Publishing Talks, a podcast about books and the publishing industry. I'm David Wilk. I've been talking to Mary Gannon, the executive director of CLMP, the community of literary magazines and presses. Mm -hmm.